Let's face it, if you're active, the risk of injury is always present, meaning if we push ourselves too hard, we're just one accident away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention less time doing the stuff that we love, struggling with our mental health. You know, injuries are so much more than the actual injury. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride uh, and organizations like USA Cycling, and they work with events like Red Bull Last Stand to offer injury insurance with lift tickets, memberships, or race registrations. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered. They also have a really cool individual plan that's only $25 a month, and it's specialized towards covering people that do gnarly stuff because it's really hard to get insurance companies to cover us if we're doing dumb stunts. Um, with Spot, if your customer or if your event attendee, uh, competitor ends up getting hurt, Spot will cover up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductibles. With Spot, all of your customers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back to their best lives and you are also covered. It also allows you to be covered as an individual because we know that medical expenses can be super hectic, especially if you love to travel and do dumb stuff. Visit outofbounds.getspot.com to partner with Spot and kind of get the ball rolling on some awesome coverage for your business and your community. Um, yeah, that's learn more at outofbounds.getspot.com. Okay, so one of my biggest goals this season is to get comfortable planning my route for a backcountry trip. I had a friend point out recently that I am very knowledgeable and I help make navigation decisions and snow safety decisions when we're actually out in the backcountry, but when it comes to that pre-planning aspect, opening up a map, choosing where we're going to go, um, I usually let other people kind of take the reins. And I realized that that is a huge safety flaw in my knowledge and experience. And it's something that I want to work on. So I'm super pumped that our uh, podcast sponsor on X is helping me realize those bad bitch dreams. And I think their app is freaking dope and an awesome tool to help chicks feel and other people feel, everybody feel more confident and independent uh, when it comes to making those decisions and participating in group safety. It's, it's basically a guidebook in your pocket that's intuitive and super easy to use because we all hate an app that doesn't work since we're addicted to convenience. Um, the premium subscription gives you access to offline GPS that allows you to save maps and locate yourself in the terrain you're in to make sure you're en route, which is awesome because I am so geographically challenged. Um, there, there's over 10,000 guide quality routes with descriptions and photos. You can slope shade, route plan, place waypoints, and view the landscape in 3D topo satellite, hybrid base maps. You also have access to other information like forecasts, land boundaries, recreation points, historic avalanche data. It's freaking bananas, all the stuff you get in there. But yeah, the, the premium subscription is only $29 a year, which is so freaking cheap. And with the discount code that we have today, you get 20% off of that. So if you're scared of commitment like me, you can sign into a seven-day free trial. So you can definitely give it a go and make your mind up later. It's super freaking easy peasy. And yeah, these guys are just making access to information a lot more... Uh, reachable, like reducing barriers and making sure it's easy for everybody to kind of use these tools. But yeah, 
If you're into it, you can head to their website, www.onxmaps.com, and you can use our discount code out of bounds for 20% off the premium subscription. And like I said, they've got that seven day free trial, so you can run away from commitment. Tally ho, no, before you go, my dude, safety looks good on you. What is up, my dudes? It is Monday, and you know what that means. This is another episode of Big Stick Energy coming at you live, keeping you company while you're doing chores, while you're driving to the ski hill. If you're a nine-to-fiver just trying to get through the grind, we are here for it. My name is Tori Anderson. You can find me at Tori A. Alina on Instagram, and you can also find my co-host and best friend for life, Renee McCurdy, at Renee McCurds on Instagram. We are two of five co-founders of the Womb Tang brand, and we are graciously blessed to be giving you this podcast on the Out of Collective uh, Network today, founded by Adam Jabber. So it was a hectic week, not going to lie. (laughs) Uh, You know, there was that whole Tanner Hall debacle that was awkward. Stuff got a bit wild there. Um, I don't know if I'm really comfortable talking about it yet on uh, someone else's intro, but I think it'd be good to just do a general episode about it because there's a lot of like misconceptions about what I was trying to articulate in my comment. It was not about shaming. It wasn't about um, belittling anybody. It wasn't about Melissa uh, feeling empowered in her sexuality. It was purely about the context of that photo being shared within the ski industry by someone who has a prominent and powerful position as a professional male athlete with influence over other young boys. That was purely it. It was purely what the the image communicated rhetorically and connotatively to the audience without really looking into who made it, who did this, who did this. To be fair, none of that context was included at all in the photo that they were in a relationship and the the way that melissa was in front of him didn't exactly communicate that they were in a relationship either not with typical imagery that we see online um melissa's profession uh being a professional for 15 years like understanding all of that context and the fact that they're in a relationship it makes a lot more sense and like doing stuff like that in a relationship a hundred percent if you consent to it and feel empowered by it that is normal and I support Melissa, but a lot of people tried to like spin what I said to turn it into that I was not feminist. That is not the case. I support sex work. I support Melissa. It was purely about the context of it being shared in the industry and unpacking why that's harmful. And part of it's a huge part of why we have gotten to where we are today with ski culture. Like, you know, I'm going to use surfing as an example, right? There was this huge thing in surfing a few years ago, maybe like 10 years ago even. But if you look at any marketing or imagery of professional athletes who are women in that industry, they're always very sexualized. It's always about the lifestyle shot, their appearance. It's never them shredding away. It's always like focusing on the objectification of women. And that communicates that a woman's value is purely aesthetic. It's objective. It's through the male gaze. And when I say the male gaze, The male gaze purely means that a piece of content has been made for male consumption. So the photo that Tanner posted is still made for male consumption because of what it communicated rhetorically, which I went over in my analysis. Um, That's the whole point of like the male gaze. So like product design in the male gaze is in the male gaze, which we talk about in this episode, which I'm so excited about. 
But yeah, that that whole thing was absolutely hectic. But I want to say that the number of people that spoke up in the comments and came together was amazing. And regardless of whether or not you think Tanner Hall should not be, you know, everybody's saying attacked, but it, it's not an attack. He shouldn't be called out for something like this because it's Tanner Hall and he has uh, like problematic behavior in the industry that shouldn't change accountability. If we all just like brush it off or like, well, whatever, what else do you expect? It's like, you know, you could use that same argument for like colonialization or other types of racism or like women's suffrage. It's like, what else do you expect from men or from white people or from this? So why should you change anything? That's not an acceptable stance. Like I, accountability is really important. And if people don't have accountability, then the industry isn't going to go anywhere. So yes, still brought it up. I think also part of the problem is everybody has very emotional associations towards like objectifying or feminism or toxic masculinity. And it's like those emotional associations mean that those are like buzzwords that you react to. But if you remove the reaction and you purely focus on like the um, denotative meaning of them, like look up the definition of male gaze, look up the definition of objectification. If you don't understand those words and you're trying, you're purely translating them through an emotional lens, then you're not going to get the full scope of the analysis. And it took me a really long time to learn that because as a white person, you know, the word racism for white people is very emotionally charged because of what's been communicated to us about it. But in order for us to actually be effective allies, we have to unpack that trauma and we have to uh, heal that trauma so that we can show up and we don't centralize ourselves as the victims. Because if you're getting triggered every time somebody pulls up a word like that because you have emotional associations to it you're not going to be able to be an effective ally and that's the honest truth none of that was emotionally charged for me in that comment it was purely analytical using my education the research that i've gathered through running womb tang and uh my degree in business and in marketing understanding how associations influence people to buy things and they construct culture like it is all very integrated and I have researched and literally devoted my career to understanding these things. So yes, wanted to touch on that briefly. Um, another reason that I wanted to touch on this before going into this episode today, not to taint the guests that we have coming on, because um, I know another podcaster did that this week and they told us to shut up about it. I'm sure everybody else heard it. It was a direct call out, um, not a good look, dude. But on another note, Feminarly, the guest that we have on today, holy guacamole, this chick is charging hard to change inequities in uh, like access to gear for women. And she has so much rich data, so much rich data on like the lack of reviews for women online and what's influencing purchasing behavior online versus offline. Like, uh, purchase majority, like there were some super sick statistics and we go into such a deep analysis and she is doing so much to change it, like so much. It's so freaking cool. I have so many cool business ideas that I want to like just absolutely dive into with her because her brain is phenomenal. It was such an intellectual and deep conversation and I am so into it. Also her website, um, you can just Google Femi Gnarly, F 
E-M-I-G-N-A-R-L-Y. We will also have it hyperlinked in the bio down below. Um, she has reviews that are the most in-depth reviews I have ever seen, and they are so helpful to female skiers. And it's not just reviews written by like expert skiers for expert skiers. These skis are skied to different ability degrees and to really help women get on the right equipment that will help them like excel because selling appropriately to women and, you know, factoring in aspects like how heavy they are, how that changes the way that the ski is going to perform underneath them with like a wider tip, a narrow tip. Do they have the mass to achieve the same velocity as a man? Like there's so much that goes into it, guys. And I am so freaking impressed. Um, Feminarly, her name is Annalise Price. And today's episode is Certifiably Bitchin'. Um, if you feel so inclined, just to drop this at the end here, uh, if you could leave us a review on whatever streaming platform you are currently listening to this, it would really help us kind of like push forward with our uh, the podcast network collective and kind of get this message out there to more people. Uh, Adam has some really, really, really awesome ideas to expand the collective and bring in some new shows for you guys. So like every review helps and we sincerely appreciate it. But yeah, um, this episode is great. Let us know what you think. And we would love to do some more gear specific episodes. So if you have any questions or you want to dive into any of the topics that we discussed today, like whether it's finding the right boot, like any gear questions that you have, hit us in the DMs and we'll try to get it sorted for you. Anyways, thanks for my rant about Tanner Hall. I've had enough of the internet this week. And uh, yeah, tally ho. Hope you have a great Monday, everybody. This is another episode of Big Stick Energy dropping in three, two, one. Um, Annalise, <laughs> do you want to like introduce yourself quickly and tell everybody who you are, what you do, your feminarly, bruv? Yeah. Um, so I'm Annalisa. Uh, I live in Seattle. Um, I've been skiing for about six years, um, ski locally at Stevens Pass. And um, over the course of starting to ski, I really got into ski gear and how I could set myself up for success and actually keep up with my friends who were much better than I was uh, by getting into gear and really understanding um, how gear works and how I, I could, you know, find a setup that would work in my favor. Um, and so I started putting that down on paper um, originally for other women just on social media and in social like Facebook groups on um, who would have like certain questions. Um, but the more I kind of had those correspondences helping women pick out setups, I was like, there needs to be a place where um, this is put out on the internet where it can be findable on Google and where I don't have to rewrite the same thing 25 times. Um, so I started a site and I called it Feminarly because um, I thought it was a good combination of femininity and gnarliness, uh, which the industry rarely lets sit together. But I thought this would be a space where I could uh, blend those two two aspects of life. Did you ever work in shops or what kind of, was it just your own experience with skiing that got you so involved in the gear or you have retail experience as well? I have retail experience. Um, I started my career, I've always worked in retail, um, but kind of right around the time I started skiing, I started working as a product line manager in the intimate space. Um, so I kind of had that, that 
product line manager mindset of like every item needs to serve a unique purpose and um, kind of understanding customer personas. And so um, when I was trying to answer my own questions about gear, that was kind of like, okay, I know all of this stuff will probably fit into a similar framework. I just need to do the legwork to figure out like what those different personas are and kind of how different gear speaks to different types of skiers. That's sick. So you basically, right now the industry standard, I mean, maybe not quite, but we kind of like, when we were doing our pre-interview to the interview, where we dropped so much fire things that never make it on recording, which is so sad. Um, we were talking about how gear in the industry is made through the male gaze. And I was actually just on your website creeping while you were talking. So I was like, yes, I love everything that she's saying. And I found this one article that was like LibTech, Jamie Lynn, short, wide board and sexist top sheets. And you have this one section at the bottom that's talking about um, like the objectification of women to sell products that are made by men for men with top sheets from a male artist, which is the male gaze. And on this top sheet, they have a depiction of a naked woman, which is sexualizing women for the consumption and enjoyment of men. Yep. Yep. And we could say product design is literally the same. The enjoyment of being better, the enjoyment of having a majority, like there is a less than. That's literally how women's products are designed a lot of the time. It's aesthetics over performance. I mean, if you watch, if you look at the original women's products that were brought to market, you know, people always say that women's skier has gotten so much better over the decades. Like I, I haven't really experienced a ton of women's ski history, but the kind of what I've gathered is, the first women's skis were beginner skis and they were super soft and like over time they've gotten more aggressive and they've started to find more parity with men's skis. Um, they have, yeah, there certainly the, are ones on the market. That is a blanket statement. If I said all of them are like that, they are not all like that. Um, but it is, you know, they have the men's ski and then they dumb down the materials in the women's ski, shrink it and pink it as they call it. Or ideally, they just put a different top sheet on it uh, and make it impossible to find for us for demo and impossible to find at a store. But I guess that's better than nothing because the performance at the end of the day is at least equal. Performance is there. Accessibility is not. That is a very Correct. important assertion to make. Um, I don't think I said that word properly. Anyways, yeah, that is a really, really good point. A great example is actually like the imports to New Zealand. They only import a certain level of women's outerwear and ski gear. It's very, very, very hard to find any type of advanced women's ski gear or any Gore-Tex jackets for women. Where the ski shop that I worked in would have like 20 different Gore-Tex high-end jackets for men. And that's importing. Like for, you know, domestic retail. I was just like... What? They're like, yeah, women just aren't interested in that thing. But then working on the floor every day, the number of women that came in upset that there weren't options was a huge part of the problem. 100%. How are they getting it this wrong, like wrong across the entire supply chain? Well, who's deciding the top of the supply chain? Men. That's why it's patriarchal. There you go. <laughs> I I struggle a little bit with like... I, I, we don't know that for sure. Like, I, I don't know. I, that's an assumption that I'm making. Do you have any statistics on that? We know that you're a data daddy. <laughs> she has the data. <laughs> um, when I look at like what brands are actually putting out there, um, 
like things that people are buying kind of match up with what people are selling in the industry. Um, and if anything, like, I feel like a lot of the times when I've talked to a handful of people and on the product side, um, they get a lot of pushback from like stores and retailers about what they're willing to carry. Like I know you guys had Matt Manzer on a couple of weeks ago and he was like, yep, we know that like women need a boot that can charge. And so if anything, I feel like a lot of times the like product line managers have been the ones um, kind of getting creative of like, if we can't offer a, you know, park ski, a, an all mountain playful ski and a directional charger for women, like how do we add an additional size? Like, make sure that things go down into the 160s to meet the needs of that customer. Um, how do we combine a, a boot line and, you know, just make the smaller sizes a women's specific cuff so that we're not making people add ad additional lines and skis, but we're letting, making it really easy for retailers to kind of have those women friendly sizes and some pretty charging gear. Um, I think, I know that like, and I don't know this firsthand, but I've heard that a lot of times Europe, um, a couple of huge retailers in Europe are also some of the ones that make decisions about um, what is viable in the market. And they're such big accounts that like, if they say something needs to be in pink, then like, or they won't buy it. Like it, it's a convincing, um, convincing argument. And so, um, and that's like something when it comes to like global ordering and global trends, like definitely outside my wheelhouse, like my knowledge is definitely limited to, to the US, if not like broader North America. Yeah, I would love to ask those like mo like mongrels in the industry, like those ones kind of pushing for those key decisions. I would love to ask them what percentage of their R&D department or like market research department is actually dedicated towards women and how much data there is behind those choices or if they are assumptions. Because I have consulted clients before in marketing and branding when I'm asking them about their existing strategy, I'm like, where did you get this idea from? And they're like, oh, it's just like, what's what's happening in Japan? And I'm like, what? It's like, it's just what's what's happening. They're like, yeah, you know, they just like love like this like metallic color. It's sick. It's just what's happening. I was like, oh, okay, where'd you like collect that data from? Um, wh what are your research points? They're like, oh, you know, it's just what just what's happening. Like, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go yeah. shoot myself. It's fine. That was a bad business decision, but damn. <laughs> and I should say the conversations that I've had with product line managers, being more creative, being more progressive, that's definitely on the like bigger brand side of the business. On the smaller side, I've had like a few conversations where it's like, I think your mount point is too far back. Like that's that's my opinion that I expressed. Like, it's really weird to me that they're so close to center mounted, but they don't have the ability to like ski switch. And like, they're not like the shape is very directional, but the mount point is very centered. Um, and they're like, oh, well, well, you know, they did research like all these years ago. And, you know, all women want like across the board, women, like women's skis, they like mount the mount point two centimeters forward. And like, the person that told me that had formerly worked at K2 where it had, they, I think that research had happened in like the early 2000s or like 1990s. But if you look at like K2, like they're not doing that anymore. Like the mount point is flush with like where it falls on the men's ski. And like, if you look across the industry, like most brands have changed that. And it's either like a, like a half centimeter forward, just because they say like smaller boot sizes, you want like just as much of your foot kind of in front of the, the mount point. Um, but yeah, a lot of them are like putting them in the same spot. Um, 
for women and men. And so it was, it was just strange to me that that was like this relic that the industry did 20 years ago that like this executive for a smaller indie brand was just so stuck on and took it as fact, even though like women's tastes are changing and um, like the, the industry has progressed, but like there's been no finger on the pulse to, to catch on to that. Yeah. Hell yeah. And I, I think where that comes from is that um, men, their center of gravity is in their chest, whereas women, we have it in our hips more so. So if you move the mount point forward that slight bit, and I don't think it's like two centimeters necessarily, like I will move mine forward like one centimeter, but that's kind of like the the theory behind it. And for me also, I like to move forward one just because I didn't grow up as a racer. So I don't have that full on like racer stance. And I do ski with a little bit more of a like smeary, like neutral stance because I didn't grow up with that. It's a little bit of a different, more playful stance than what a racer would have. So I feel like it does suit me a little bit better for being able to still ski, ski the way I want to. But I think that's where it did originate is with that like center of gravity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the boot size also does make sense for moving it up slightly as well. Yeah. I want to, I want to dive into like, speaking of like data research differences, you listed some really awesome statistics earlier from like comparative analyses between like different types of data to find correlations of how X is affecting Y and like, I think that stuff is really important because I love like numerical data. It's linear and it tells a story and you can't argue with it when you see it. Right. It's just yeah. like, damn, like this is an opinion. This is now like, mm, that's my type of stuff. But yeah, you should tell, let's hear it on the record. Yeah. Um, so I have felt very passionately over um, a number of years that um, women's coverage in gear reviews is just really missing the mark. Um, I kind of ran into this anecdotally. Um, I was looking to upsize my skis and I wanted something that was like intermediate friendly, but with a good runway for progression. Um, great, like off-piste learning ski. Um, so at the time, like I was really looking at the old Pandora 95, um, but kind of curious about other skis in that range. Like at the time there was the Vantage 95, um, the Full of It 95 from K2. Um, and so I knew I wanted something in that wheelhouse that's like friendly, all mountain capable um to get started on and when i started looking for reviews to get an idea of like which one i should focus in on and which ones i should find demos for um i really wasn't finding anything like i was really curious about the pandora and i kept finding reviews for the 110 um so i'm like reading those and i'm like how much does that apply like is this a similar ski is is this like completely different um and it frustrated me that like women's pal skis are not like the the you know, highest sellers, but there are lots of women looking for a really versatile, well-rounded all mountain ski and I could find nothing for it. Um, and so that's kind of like the first time I was like, I think, I think women are being underserved in, in the review space. Um, but the more I like skied and shopped for skis and bought skis, um, and talked to women who were looking for ski advice, um, the more I was kind of convinced of it. Um, so at one point I had a friend of mine who works in the industry who forwarded me, 
um, on accident, I'm not supposed to have this, um, a year of sale selling history. So I could see data for the first time of like what the most popular models were um, and what women were responding to, whether they were buying it in store or online. Um, so I, I could finally answer some of my own questions um, about, about gear and sales. Um, and so I, I was like, I can also look at this um, in terms of what skis women are shopping for um, or looking for in, in Google. So um, you can see in Google Trends, like if something is uh, searched at a really high rate or really low rate, they don't give you like the raw number of searches, but you could index them. Um, like the the bare minimum ski I could find that was searched was like the vocal comma. So I like compared everything to that ski to get a sense of like, what are the what are the skis that women are typing into their search bar um and does that line up with what's selling in the market or or not um so that was kind of like the first time i was able to look at um you know the the correlation between what sells and what people are searching for but yeah so i was able to kind of like do some quick math in terms of um, what are popular skis from a selling perspective, what are popular skis from a research perspective, and like what are skis that are totally not being like covered that are that rank really highly in both of those. Um, and so yeah, I found that there's some pretty big discrepancies between what's getting reviewed, um, what's getting high word count, um, and what's uh, getting lots of different testers on it. Um, and that was across both the men's and the women's uh, side of the business, which I thought was really interesting. I could finally like break out those gender uh, delineations and and compare kind of coverage for both genders. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I found that there's a big problem. Um, and it kind of starts with the reviewers. Um, women make up a much smaller portion of the people who are given product uh, to write reviews on. Um, so women get 30% or, or make up 30% roughly of reviewers um, in the industry. I was looking at like top 10 different review sites and kind of pulling um, what I could find from them in terms of their the number of testers that they had. Um, men make up 70% of the, the um, reviewer pool. And so already like women are not getting like a representative uh, coverage from just a review staffing um, perspective. Um, and that that discrepancy gets even worse when you talk about people who review full-time and it's like a paid gig um, where they're really putting lots of skis on their feet, like through the paces um, and like creating lots and lots of content day in and day out versus like the person who's balancing this like, with work and home life. Um, so less reviewers means less content. Um, when you look at the total number of reviews, um, we went from 30% women and 70% men when it came to like total reviewers. When you look at the actual number of reviews they're producing, um, women's skis get 28% of reviews and men's skis get 72% of reviews. Um, and then it gets worse when you take into consideration word count. Like not all of these ski review companies are providing um, equally great uh, review coverage. Um, some are the types that will produce like 2,000 to 4,000 words um, about a ski. They'll get multiple reviewers on it to share their perspectives. They'll get it in every different type of snow condition. 
Um, and some of these review sites that rank really highly are ones that will just regurgitate like literally just 150 words of whatever marketing copy they were given. Um, so when you take word count into consideration, women are getting 21% of review words and men are getting 79% of review words. And that drastically misses the mark when you think about like the actual split of men's ski sales to women's ski sales. Um, so there's a huge, a huge gap in um, the amount of coverage that women are finding. And, um, you know, some people will justify it. They'll be like, men are the gear nerds and they're the ones that really enjoy this sort of information. And women just like the women are just looking for something that they can have a good time on. Like maybe not all of them, but in general, like they're, they're just, you know, looking for the bare minimum to just have, have fun on. Um, and that's definitely, that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, even outside of skiing, women um, put a lot more time and effort into their purchases. Um, women make less money. We are way more risk averse. Um, and we've been socialized to be good shoppers. Like we have been going to TJ Maxx with our moms since we've been like six years old. We've learned to find a bargain. We've learned to find uh, good products that are going to meet our needs. And we're the people who make purchasing decisions for the family. Um, so I don't know why people in the review industry find it so unfathomable that a woman would want to spend time on Google and make sure that they're finding the right ski for them. Um, the other way that I think about it is, you know, which gender is going to be more confident pulling any ski off the wall and knowing that they can drive it. Like men are much more likely to consider themselves experts and women are not. Um, so that also takes into, it needs to be factored into account that there's some apprehension for women about like being able to, to, to handle whatever they buy. Um, and so like those factors combined, like women are really the ones that are, are putting more work into um, their gear shopping. And I, I find that when I'm having conversations with uh, women who are gear shopping, like I'll trade back and forth like thousand word emails going through the entire market and all the options in a lot like that's that kind of meet their needs and the different mount points and flex patterns and which one's going to be like a bit more maneuverable than the other or which one's going to float a tad bit more than the other and for men it's like oh it sounds like you want a 50 50 ski that's like you know a advanced expert and you just like send over the list and they're like cool i bought one like just without like critically thinking through all of the options because they're like you know i, I one of these is going to work for me and i know i've got strong ski ski chops and i can handle it um so yeah. I hate the ski industry a little bit more than I did this week. This week was a bad week for the ski industry <laughs> for me. Um, but I do recognize it is getting better and people like yourself are starting to change this. But the level of research analysis that you did there and like data analysis, like you looked at multiple different factors that influence uh, purchasing. A, information is available. B, how do uh, like purchasing habits outside of the ski industry indicate that they would have similar behavior when looking for a product? Why is that not currently being met? And how easy is it to access this information? Like uh, purchasing behavior and psychographics about how men and women purchase specifically in the industry very differently. Like that is so important. And you were so right. Working in a ski shops, for 14 years of my life, men will always come in and tell you exactly how good they are or how good they think they are. But women never will, ever. Women will doubt how good they think they are. Yes, they will. But, 
I've told people you should get this ski in this length, not the shorter one. You need to go up to the longer one, send them out the door with a demo and they come back and they're like, oh my gosh, I totally could ski this ski, but they just didn't realize it because they've been told that they need a ski that's as tall as their freaking chin their whole life. Yeah, I so a lot of times when I help women buy skis um, and like friends and stuff, I'll be like, okay, if you've got the ability to do a demo day, like, like being able to go out and test for yourself and really figure out what you like and what you can handle is such an important part of really understanding your ski style. Um, for me, getting that process um, was super influential for me being getting to the point where I could review skis. Um, and a lot of times I'll make a list with them of like, okay, here are all the ones that we think are in your wheel set or like wheelhouse. Um, but on every list, like you should have one that kind of intimidates you. Um, so it's either like a little longer than you think you need, or like you've heard this ski is for like experts, um, or it's really heavy with a directional mount point and it's got metal in it. Um, and I can't tell, I think it's like an 80% rate of times where I'll be like, all right, take your, uh, take out your like badass intimidating ski. And that's the one that they settle on or like, yep, I skied like Santa Ana in a longer length than I thought I needed. And I didn't even like hit the rest of my demo list. Like that was the one that was it. And I'm like done. Um, so yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree that, um, when you push women a little bit outside their comfort zone, they usually find a ski that they really like that unlocks um, potential for them in terms of growth. And that's something that we talk about all the time at Tang with how people can be limited in their progression because they are limited by their gear. And I know in any sport that you do, you can have crappy gear and you can be amazing at it. And that's not necessarily the point, but if I'm skiing on a ski that is, 165 cms long and like 90 wide and i'm trying to hit cliffs and ski deep powder like zones that i would normally ski i'm not gonna be able to do it nearly as well on that ski as i do on my 112 180 ish underfoot daily driver ski that i normally would ski on for that kind of big mountain terrain so having the right tool for the way that you want to progress because on that flip side, I bring that big ski into the park and I can't ski it nearly as well as a 170 underfoot, 100 wide ski that is a lot lighter. So yeah. it's all about I, uh, having the right tool for the way you want to progress, but being encouraged that you can ski that ski that's going to be a bit longer, that's going to be a bit more stable if that's where you are wanting to go with your skiing, whether you believe you can or not. <laughs> Yeah, something that, that people know that they could do. That brings up another point of like in terms of industry maxims that drive me absolutely nuts is that I hear so often like women are smaller, so they don't need as wide of a ski to float. So it's like you'll be fine on like an 88 underfoot black pearl and like you can ski the whole mountain and on it and that's all you need. And a lot of times I think that's the opposite. Like, first of all, like that 88 underfoot ski came from a men's construction. So like their ski, ski brands are starting with the men's side of the aisle. And for them, an 88 underfoot is going to be a frontside carver without a lot ton of rocker on it. Um, and so when that 
gets taken down to a women's ski, like same thing. There's not going to be a ton of rocker on it and it's not going to be designed to float. So even if it's like wide enough, like there's not that shape that lends itself to powder skiing. But the other side of that is speed. Like speed will help you plane, help your tips plane and it'll help you float. And for women, if you're in an intermediate, like approaching powder for the first time and you're socialized to be very cautious and approach new things very carefully, you're not going to be skiing very quickly. So a lot of times I'm like, you bought this 88 ski and you've been told by tons of people that like this, that you don't need anything wider. You don't really need a powder ski. If anything, I'm like the opposite. I'm like, if you are super cautious, you need a ski that's going to float for you um, and make sure that you're always above the snow and you don't need to worry about tip dive, like no matter what speed you're going, if you stop halfway down the run to like get your nervous sweats out, you don't have to use a bunch of energy to like crawl to the top of the snowpack. Um, like if anything, you need a, a ski that's really going to do like put the, stack the cards in your favor. And for me, like finding a powder ski for the first time, or at least like a 108 underfoot Atris, um, like it made powder skiing so much easier because you know, I, I had a tool that was like designed to do that job for me. Um, and so those are the messages where I'm like, if women really understood how their gear was made and kind of the intent behind it and, you know, how certain design features create a ski experience, like you could convince a woman to buy lots of skis. And I definitely can say that I've done that in the past of like a quiver works in your favor. If you've got lots of, if you ski in lots of different conditions and you have, goals for groomer days and goals for park days and goals for powder days. Like you should have multiple skis to support those different types of progression. Um, and, and that's women are just being sold, you know, here's an all mountain ski. It does a little bit of everything and one, one and done is enough. Um, and I think that's absolutely the wrong message. Oh my God. Yes. To everything that you just said, you were looking at like the purchasing behavior. You could, We've done, sorry, I just, I have so many ideas in my brain. I need to like quickly. Um, first of all, yes. I love how you were analyzing the, the purchasing decisions and how that's factored. I think it's also important, something we've talked about a lot on this show is how the culture kind of shapes that expectation and understanding for women. Like I've literally had girls like come up and give me a hug and just gush the first time they get on a ski that's actually right for them like gives them the flotation like you're talking about. And like, I've never considered the speed factor, even though I know that. And I have experienced that. That is so freaking true when it comes to like the tip and being able to float when you're on an 88 ski. That is so cool. And women don't know. And it's really interesting because the ski industry is literally shooting themselves in the foot by not investing in this demographic. And that is a positive trend that we've seen in uh, in Wumtang that women don't feel comfortable going into ski shops. They are often sold the wrong thing. There's not a lot of investment in training staff to actually sell skis differently based on gender and how they function. Like there is a strict, like it is a patriarchal model on all aspects of it. And then women have internalized beliefs about like why they should be looking for gear, how their gear works for them. And like, no wonder they're not progressing at the same rate as men when we've never had the right gear to make us feel confident on the mountain. The right gear makes a big difference. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, when you talk about like women and their experiences in the ski shop, you can actually see in my one year of clandestine data uh, that like women start out as the ski resort or the ski shop's best customer. Um, when it comes to skis rated, you know, beginner to intermediate, I ranked it according to Evo's ratings. Um, like 
beginner women compared to beginner men, beginner women are less likely to buy their stuff online. And then you flow through intermediate, advanced, and expert. And by the time women are experts, they are the ski shop's worst customer. They are like, I don't want to talk to anybody about skis. They're just going to give me some spiel about how like, that's a mighty long like pair of skis for you, little lady. Um, and so she's desperately looking for advice. And without, you know, a great resource in terms of ski reviews, um, she's looking socially, like a lot on social media sites and um, gear forums to be like, hey, what do people think about this sort of thing? Um, and then she's also paying a lot of money to demo skis. Um, and I don't think that will change uh, as gear review information gets more widely published. Um, women love a try before you buy or love a satisfaction guarantee, like across the board when it comes to retail, like anything that kind of takes the risk out of the purchase. Um, but she's she's paying a lot of money to demo tons of different skis compared to like narrowing down a, a short list that really fits her from a ski persona standpoint. Um, and yeah, she's, she's doing that. And then she's just buying online and, um, like local ski shops, they're like support local. And it's like, why, <laughs> when I'm not getting great service and I'm not getting a great experience, like what, why should I shop local? Um, but it's also a really interesting point when you talk about like patriarchal standpoint, um, I wrote a piece on stiff boots. Somebody wrote to me and was like, hey, I've like called a bunch of shops in Seattle. I can't find a pair of boots in store, um, you know, above a, a 110. Um, and I was like, well, that kind of makes sense. Like they're not really high, or a, a women specific, I should say, boot above 110. Um, but I was like, that kind of makes sense. They are not strong sellers. It's a big spot on the wall to give up to, you know, one 120 boot when you could just do a different 95 flex in a different like last width or different brand um and so i kind of i was like i kind of get that but the people that you called should have been like we have some options for you like we can fit you in like the 95 version of like the mach one technica mach one and then we can special order you a pair of you know the 120 flex or we can try you on some of the like if you've got a in size foot we can talk about like tweaks that we can do to really dial in that fit. Um, but I don't think a lot of shop people are going to like deconstruct the patriarchy for what ski like shop workers are being paid. Like in the Seattle Metro, like a boot fitter salary starts at $18 an hour. And you look at like the local, um, a couple of the local fast food chains and they start people at like 20 to 22. So like, why should somebody go above and beyond and do all of these special orders and special fits for women when like there's there's not a whole lot of like like esteem in in the role especially from like a payment standpoint and so i think it's both like the patriarchal aspect but i also think if you treat roles with more dignity and trust them to be more business drivers and solution finders for a shop and not just like an average retail worker, I think that level of service for women would also increase. Like, I think it's a double-edged sword. Oh, hundred percent. But the patriarchy is a colonial concept and so is capitalism. They're friends. They are friends. They are BFFs, buffles. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it's all kind of intertwined, but you're hundred percent right. And we've had this argument with Adam before, bless his soul, Adam Giaba from Out of Bounds, um, about how, Ski shops don't pay staff enough to give a shit about making a more equitable selling environment. So, you know, like we want to 
potentially as Wumtang develops, come up with a course that ski shops could purchase to help educate staff. So it's like, how do you systemically change it to empower people? And then like, I mean, it's an option. Obviously, people need to be paid more with the current state of the economy, inflation and war in the Ukraine. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in making that a reality over the next couple of years. But you are 100% right. Let's be real. We got to get paid more before we can make any courses. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's a great example. Oh, my God. (laughs) Fuck. Yeah. I mean, Season three of the pandemic's been wild so far. I just got to say. I mean, shops, if they (laughs) get commission, then you have a bit more incentive. But um, I know even like you were talking about the lack of reviews for women. And I have been that person when, when I was not such a privileged person and had to buy my own skis. (laughs) I was that person that would look up every single ski that I thought might be good for me. And I would try and find those reviews on YouTube or like read the blister reviews or whatever. And I'm usually, I mean, I do often ski men's skis, so I I can read the men's reviews too, but I just don't know if I ever really realized the discrepancies, but when you say it, it makes total sense to me because I've tried to Google reviews for so-and-so ski and you cannot find anything. And if you do, it's just that regurgitated sales pitch that doesn't actually tell you anything about it. It just is that like vanilla will never say a single bad thing about this ski. Whereas those longer reviews, those are the ones that break it down and say, this is how it was on a groomer. This is how it was in chopped up snow. This is how it was in powder. This is how it was in this length. And this other person skied it in this length. And I liked it best mounted at this point forward or one back, or this is where I felt like I, I actually got the most out of the ski and they can, comment to how damp it is and that vanilla short marketing one that you get straight up is paid for by a company to be posted in xyz magazine or website it's not a true review by any standards like i want to know like how it ranks on a scale of one to five in x different categories so that i can determine how it is to me we should do a rec- we should publish a white paper about that. Look at gear reviews and compare them and create, oh my God, quantitative metrics where we measure the success of meeting like these needs, decision factors to make a ski and information comparing men's and women's reviews. That would be such good information. And then we could also cross-reference it with how many women ask each other for advice in our Wumtang private faction groups because they do not find what they need on the internet. They cannot find it by going into a ski store. There is so much overlap. God, I love research. You Um, can do that, bitch. I do not got time. (laughs) I don't really either, but it's something I would love to develop. That is like goals with Wumtang is just to, yeah. Anyways. And it's, when you mentioned that too, the other thing that reminded me of is um, the... There aren't very, because women's don't get that many reviews, there aren't that many sites providing a comprehensive set for a given category. So if we look at like the Santa Ana 98, the Black Pearl 97, and the Secret 96, 
Um, those are like three huge skis, both across sales, and they rank really highly in terms of research. Like those are the ones that women have a lot of questions on. They're major brands. Um, and they speak to that like progressing intermediate through expert skier. Um, there is only one review outlet out of all of them out there that talks about all three of those skis. And they do it in a special like buyer's guide that isn't even visible. Like you can't pick it up from Google. Um, it's not like text. It's I think just uploaded as images. And so um, like search engines can't like don't work in order to kind of present all three of those skis for you. Um, so for the customer that's like, okay, I want a directional like heavier like charger charging ski like there's there's no way to kind of look at all the three of those skis in parallel by especially by the same reviewer and so if you, even if you are able to find reviews you see one that says like oh this was like way too much ski for me and then another one say that like you know like say that the like black pearl is like way too much ski for me and then they'll say another one will say that like oh i found the santa anna like not quite stable enough and you're like well you're two different reviewers and I can't tell how good of a steer you are. Like I haven't read enough of your stuff to get a sense of your like ability level and like what your style is. And so even when you do get the data points, like the ability to like see them side by side and and make any educated inferences is not 100% by any means. That's a really good point because you don't really have that baseline of comparison. One thing that my boss in New Zealand said to me was like, you need, I would just like take the Rosie experience 80 and just point it straight and I would bend the ski in half trying to rail it at all because it's literally soft as butter and um he was like you need to ski the ski like you're the person that it's for so it's like being able to do a comprehensive um review with women of different abilities on like multiple different skis that's honest and true it's like if you put this much power into the ski this is what you're gonna get out of it if you are a little bit more relaxed, you like a ski that you can smear a little bit more, you're not like really engaging that edge, releasing, like this is the type of ski for you. Are you direct? Like you need to have that level of analysis because it, it would really help women. And yeah, everything you said is spot freaking on. Um, I, I keep having this point when you're talking, it pops into my head and then it leaves, but I really <laughs> want to say it and I can't remember what it is as soon as I start talking. I have a piggyback on kind of what you said about the experience though. So I can take that and we can come back. Yes. And meet it. Um, <laughs> so the other challenging thing is that like most of the people who review skis have been skiing for a long time and have skied lots of skis and are very proficient skiers. And for men, that is fine. They're like, I have pizza down a black diamond in like, Michigan once. And so when I read a review by this 24 year old who throws backflips, it is applicable to me and I will take it at face value and what they like, I will buy. And for women, it's the opposite. Like they see that somebody has a race background and it's like, well, I didn't grow up in doing that. Or like, I am an adult learner. And so I've talked to so many women who are like ripping skiers who read, you know, published reviews and are like, well, that person really liked it. And I that almost makes me nervous that it's going to be too much ski for me. And so like one of the things that I think makes me stand out and what I would want to see more in the industry is like, I have six years of skiing under my belt and I took a lesson like once. And so like, I've grown a lot as a skier, but I, I'm also not that far away from like 
backseat skiing and nervous skiing and like less than perfect form. And so um, I also don't think a lot of review outlets get the fact that like you need to make women seem relatable, um, even if they're like a total ripping like skier, like adding that vulnerability of like, this is how it worked when I got really nervous or like, yep, down this run, like conditions were terrible. And I was like way in the backseat. And like, I still found this ski really like easy to, to, to steer and easy to t initiate turns. And like that information is really valuable. Um, just to help other women feel more confident, like taking that review at face value. Um, whereas yeah. I feel like men can be like, I crushed on it all day. And I like totally ripped up the resort and like m other men will like see that and feel confident in it. But I think that, that um, just human humanifying and um, making the women who are reviewing just a little bit more accessible is super, super important to, to build trust with the reviewer. A hundred percent. There are so many intersections of research that I did that just streamed through my head. Um, like that, that personability, it, that's been lacking from the industry literally since the dawn of time. The dawn of time, or not the dawn of time, the industry's marketing standard and connecting with an audience was built for a male audience. It's like the exclusivity, exclusivity of being an expert right? So everything's worded because they're trying to reach that masculine goal of being an expert in the industry to like dominate, to push each other. And there's a lot of like intersectional feminist discourse, academic discourse about that echo chamber and how sports are marketed to men for that aspect. Women, that personability, that relatableness, that's why Wumtang excelled is because it was relatable. It was honest. It was talking about like you know, I go out there, I love the backseat, super comfortable. Just kidding. <laughs> I don't, but do I end up in it a lot? Hell yeah. Especially when I'm in my 130 boots and I'm not ready to ski super hard. Like they kick my ass and that's okay. There's other days I charge on them too. And that is one of the biggest things is you see women apologizing for taking up space and not being perfect when they're learning. Totally. And like, even from my standpoint, like I was talking to a friend of mine who's a newer skier and she was like, you know, you, you talk about how you're really, you know, how you can relate and how, you know, you're an adult learner and, you know, a less than perfect skier, but like, you look like you're rip on Instagram. And I'm like, yeah, I go through everything and like do the like time shift the time. So I'm like at my peak and at my prime. Cause like, I don't want to get trolled by people on the internet telling me that I suck. But at the same time, I think that's an important thing to represent just because I think that like, we need to be honest with each other about like how we ski and kind of our experiences on gear to help other people find the right setups. A hundred percent. Do you think men look at their photos and videos and they go, oh, this angle wasn't that tight. I don't need to think about this this hard. I don't need to pick between these two. I bet they just post. Uh, I know a couple of guys who are like, yeah, if you take a video, then you can like find the right point of the sequence where you like look the best. So I think I think they're doing the same thing. But to I, the same I bet degree, they do to some. I bet they do to some for, degree. But for the same concerns to be mocked, they do it so they look cool and maximize likes. They are not concerned about being like trolled by people on the internet. Like so that's the difference. The yeah, I think that's it, right? One's the out of fear. One's out of like meeting that kind of exclusivity of expert yeah very different because Renee and I do that we're like this one or this one it's like I don't think that I look that tight in this one but this one I'm going bigger so like which one should I post it's true you like post your <laughs> you can post things that you like 
but then it gets to a point where you're like, I need to post something rad so that I can still validate my own ski cred. And it like gets to a point where I'm like, is this for me or is this just to prove to the shitheads that comment on my comments saying, what do you know? You can't even do a 180. It's like, <laughs> I can do a 180. I'll post a video of it. Yeah, that is <laughs> such an important thing. Is it for you? The men, it's, it's, for, it's for them. It's like for that culture. It's like to vibe with their bros. For the women, it's out of fear. And it's out of like, I don't want to be shamed on the internet. But it's like, we need to take that shit back. Like, post the video of you eating shit or doing something that might not be that impressive to the male viewer. But hot damn, it's good for you. Trying's hot. That's literally our narrative. I think we need to make that Boom Tang's new slogan. I love it. Trying's hot. It Period. has been our slogan. I know, but officially. Like, put it in the brand package. Uh. Sorry. Excuse me. That was uncomfortable. Oh, <laughs> Renee is giving me the look where she wants me to shut up. <laughs> We're best friends. It's fine. Uh, yeah. When we say goodbye to each other at the end of the night, it's fuck you. I'll see you tomorrow. That's true friendship. True friendship. It is. Yep. Ride or die. If I killed somebody, I would call Renee. And she <laughs> would help me. Would I? I just like, dude, you're shit out of luck. <laughs> You're like, I'm going to go back to bed. We'll deal with this in the morning. <laughs> Fuck you. We'll deal with this tomorrow. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> anyway, Man. this is okay. what we're talking about. Yes. Annalise, I love how in-depth you've gone with that analysis and how like long you've been skiing for and how passionate you've been about deconstructing all of these different aspects that don't create an awesome buying environment for women and how much it's harming the industry too. Like increase in purchase power, we've talked about it for the trend of like evolution, which was coined by Faith Pop Popcorn. They're like a market trend analysis company. Like women are passing men uh, for like the number of degrees that they have or like the level of education. Women own cars more than men in the United States right now. Like they are key purchasing powers and they are like high earners in their households. And it's like if you're not authentically engaging and diversifying, you're losing money. But businesses don't know how to get there. It's kind of funny to watch them try, to be honest. A hundred percent. Yeah. I uh, Just seeing brands like be like, you are so important to us. Like we like they went through that whole like we need to chase Blizzard market share in the like late 2010s where everybody was like women. Um, and I just remember some of them like launched their women's program like when MSP came out and we were like, or MSP's uh, return to sender came out and women were like, Hey, you should probably include women in your video. And like those same brands that were telling us how important we were and how much they stood up for us. were like, we're sponsoring this. We're also doing a contest where we'll fly somebody out to come to a premiere. Like, this is our thing. We love this movie so much. And I'm like, some of the, these two things are not, they're not reinforcing each other. Like you just, you just want me to buy shit. <laughs> right? Where's the authenticity and the accountability and the action? It's the three A's. Like, yep. I don't think like when we do, when we have awesome conversations like this, we're looking at so many intersectional factors that paint a broader picture about the state of the industry. Right. And like, they're looking at one analysis, trying to influence it when really the whole system needs an overhaul. And it's like, in order to have that overhaul, you need to have 
you know, people like yourself that understand it as such a deep level, being able to consult businesses and help them make those actionable, authentic, like choices. It's just, they don't, they don't know how. And if you keep having the same people at the heads of these businesses, making the same decisions, we're just going to go around and around in circles. Um, yeah. I yeah. also struggle with the fact that like, when you talk about change, changing behaviors, you can carrot or you can stick. And I think that like the ski industry, when it comes to women have wanted to do the like fun and positive side of feminism of like, we're going to make new skis. We're going to bring on some more athletes. We're going to do like these women's events where you can come and demo skis and you can find partners to ski with. Like there's that like fun and like connective side of it. Um, but there's not a lot of appetite to do the dirty work and say like, and see people who work in the industry, like not call each other out, but like point out the places where it's like, this is below the standard that we want to treat women with in the industry. And when I talk to people, like I've dived in the DMs of like a few pro athletes or like, I know a few people who work in the industry who have really strong feminist beliefs about how things should work, but there's so much like reticence to say that in a public sphere. And it seems like people are really concerned that like calling out where the industry is falling short seems to be like a liability from a career perspective. Um, but I saw it when we were having that like 20, like 2010, late 2020s, like girl power moment where everybody was about women. It was like, we're going to do these like really positive things and hope that everybody kind of moves, moves with it. And now that like, we're seeing the same thing from a racial equity standpoint, like we're seeing like, oh, we're going to put money in these programs and we're going to do like resort events for like affinity groups. But like, you know, I think it was a whitefish had, a, it was either whitefish or Schweitzer had an instance where like a resort employee was like called a racial slur and like the manager kept their job. And like, there was a protest by people like both in the community and people who worked at the resort and like, no one was willing to say like, Hey, that person should probably shouldn't be in a leadership position slash working in the industry at all, because like, that's not acceptable here. Like there's all of this emphasis on just like the positive side, but like accountability is just something that the industry really seems to fear. Um, and I think they, like they, we, I don't know, um, need to figure out like how to have those conversations. Um, in order to kind of like speed up progression a little bit faster and to diversify the sport as the like white, straight, hetero, cis male gets more and more, um, much smaller portion of the population. Like if you really want to have the skiers in the US as people diversify over the next 50 years, like you've got to make progress faster than it's happening right now. A hundred percent. I would just like to say I am the person stirring the pot in the comments. I get a lot of hate <laughs> exhibit stuff that happened this week. But at the same time, like when I started my angry feminist phase back in the day, nobody was jumping in on the conversation. And that was maybe like four years ago. And then today, a lot more people are calling it out. But everything that you said about the white you know, positive, just slap a sticker on it. Everything's great without actually looking at what's happening. Um, you should read a book that I read. It's called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by Richard uh, Rummelt. And it is so fucking good. He goes through multiple historical examples of businesses, military leaders making 
uh, fluffy assumptions or setting like fluffy objectives that are not like smart objectives or smart goals. And they basically never achieve anything. It's like, my business is going to do this and this and this. It's like, okay, how are you going to do that? What problems are you solving? How is it measurable? And like one of the core aspects of creating a good like strategy is being able to recognize and uh, like accept challenges. You cannot fix challenges unless you identify the core of the problem. And the ski industry doesn't want to look at the core of the problem. Absolutely not. No. And I think that, you know, something I really, um, like, you know, women's suffrage, uh, women's rights would be absolutely nowhere without BIPOC women. Absolutely nowhere. The stuff that I learned about the patriarchy and colonialism with the Indian Act in Canada and what happened to Indigenous women, like it is literally structured into society in a systemic way through institutions with a lot of power. The patriarchy is created and then it's, it's supported through popular culture that stems from those people in power. They decide what's in, what's not, right? And in the ski industry, um, you know, like BIPOC women are really standing up and they are telling people that they will not accept less. They will not accept the fluff. And I admire that so much. Like that strength comes from a lot of trauma, but like white women, the whole world would not be what it is today without them. And they don't get enough, like, yeah, they're just absolute powerhouses. I don't know if I said that in a weird way or not, but I just want to recognize that, yeah, it's a colonial goddamn world and we need to do better. <laughs> Agreed. I, when you talk about like your feminist pot stirring phase, like that, is definitely behavior that's been modeled for me by women of color um, in terms of like how to use your voice and create change and and do so in a way that is, you almost can't argue with it. And um, that really commands respect. But the harm to them, like the, like massage noir, um, it's, it was, it's a term that was coined by a, a black feminist in America, and it looks at the intersectionality of anti-Black racism and misogyny, right? And so it's like for a white woman, if I was to speak up about something, it would be like, you know, it's not really my identity, but I'm having a tiff. I'm just upset. But for a Black woman to speak up in the same way, they're stamped with the same like kind of harmful stereotype that they're just a sassy Black woman, or they're an aggressive Black woman, or all these things. And then that assumes their identity. So like identity spread is really common, uh, is a really common researched aspect in anthropology and sociology. So any marginalized or underrepresented group or oppressed group, they often have their identity completely dissolved by that group that they are part of. So whether it's like disability, whether it's being a woman, if it's like a black woman, if you were a disabled black woman, like it can go so far. If you're a disabled black trans woman, like it's, it's really interesting because people only see that aspect and it can make it really harmful for them uh, within institutions that are making like life decisions, like in diagnostic practices, like the mortality rate of uh, like black women in America is three times higher than the average white woman. And that's purely because of biases in the industry. Like IUDs, the procedure to develop it was tested on black women. 
And there's an assumption that they don't have the same like tolerance for pain. Like it's so harmful and ingrained. And it makes me so mad when people are like, AKA Tanner Hall's comment section, I'm just going to say it, or like, this isn't a problem. You're interjecting yourself or you don't understand. It's like, you don't understand because you don't deal with it every day. We understand better than you. You were blind to it because you have extreme privilege. It's just, it infuriates me. And my angry feminist stage was literally fueled by rage that I didn't know how to filter into anything productive because I couldn't understand how a system would hurt people intentionally. Those were intentional decisions. Whether or not they knew the long-term outcome of how it structures society, I don't know, but they're intentional and they're extremely harmful. That was a monologue. It, Sorry. It was a monologue. But it's how I feel. It but makes me so essentially, upset. Essentially, that is why intersectionalism is important. And which is what you described. And also, like, if people want to look up in terms of, like, medical stuff, Henrietta Lacks is a really good example of the medical system abusing Black women's rights for research. That's like a little aside. I won't go super into it because that's a monologue that I could also do. <laughs> I love monologues. But, um, yeah, like Annalisa, you brought up a, a good point too. And I read an article where they called it the queen bee hypothesis, which is where if you are in a position where you're benefiting from a certain hierarchy, even if you see those inequities, you speaking out on them, it puts you in a weird position because then you might lose everything that you have gained by being that token women or whatever. Like if you are accepted in that space and then now you're speaking out on it, then it can reflect negatively on you and you might lose your space within that industry for causing a scene. And they called it the queen bee hypothesis of why people might not speak out if they are really in in that culture and indebted in that culture. I completely agree with that. Like I have worked with some review outlets um, and speaking out and saying like, hey, we need to cover more women's gear, not just from a like, A, it helps us in terms of viewership or like readership, um, which helps us sell to advertisers like this is a money-making thing but also i was like this is of utmost importance from an ethical thing like if i was running a business and was like hey you're doing a really shitty job like you know considering like this huge faction of you know potential readers like i would i would want to fix that um and it, it's it cost me the relationship it cost me thousands of dollars of free gear every year but i i'm just one of those people where i started making decisions that that was going to be worth it and I was willing to accept it. And at some point I would be able to review either on my own or in conjunction with someone else and that um, it would pay off in the long run. But it, it, it is costly for people to speak up. Um, I also, I was talking to a friend who reached out to me and was, he's a, a guy who kind of has some relationships in the industry. And he's like, how can men be better allies when it comes to to gear and i was like well this is one of the simple ones like allyship across other factors um and other you know um facets of life gets a lot more complex um but like when it comes to gear just the ability to say like i agree um because so many times when women are like hey 
when you put a naked woman on a board, it's ultimately harmful because these products really resonate with like guys with like incel energy. Like literally they, they really work for guys who have um, like violent misogyny. Um, and so it's like, this is really harmful when you say like, yeah, you just buy this snowboard with a naked woman on it and she'll take you for the ride of your life. Um, so I'm like, hey, when somebody says like, hey, this is really problematic, provide some research or not, um, like for a man, all of it takes is to say, like, it's really helpful just to say, I agree, like that checks out and I support that because for women, when we come up with that sort of stuff, there are so many tropes to kind of minimize our concerns. Like women are crazy. We're just not as logical. We are so emotional. This is why women would never be president because they just, they're so angry and so vindictive and just looking for something to be mad about. Um, where I'm like, it, like having a large chorus of men to be like, yes, this checks out and we support your message is so, so helpful um, just because they lend their male privilege and that like, you know, their elitism in the sport and the the value that they carry in snow sports um, just by saying that. And so it gives an, an air of legitimacy that women, unfortunately, do not have on their own. Which is absolutely horrible, um, but it will change. And we've talked about this previously, like with the Jay Skis thing. We can't change the industry without them. It's not about cancel culture. It's about education and um pivoting as a team that's what it's about i just want to plug cody townsend because he's like supporter to the nines which is so fucking sick um i also wanted to say that there is a man in russia right now aka putin who decided to invade another country instead of going to therapy yep so pretty sure no wars have ever been started by women that is such a classic stereotypical argument in feminism but it is the truth <laughs> yeah so hard seeing what's going on there too it really sucks like seeing like freedom convoy or like realistically like complaining about skiing in any respect and then that's happening you're like uh, i'm privileged right now <laughs> we're privileged as fuck <laughs> On that having note. a moment of silence for how fucked up the world is <laughs> it's really off actor like i just i don't know how actually i do know how humans got here and it's really fucked up but i just i wonder how many seasons of the pandemic it's going to take for us to figure this out i've learned not to put wagers on that because i will be sorely disappointed Ain't that the truth? We just need it to stay home for a few weeks. Just I few literally weeks. got my first gray hair. I like going through all my like emergency specialty training for nursing, and it's so stressful. And I looked in the mirror a few weeks ago, and I was like, "Oh my god, I have a gray hair." Nursing in the pandemic has given me my first gray hair. I'm not even thirty yet. I would also just like to say you only have one because I literally got my hair done, and my hairdresser is like, "You know, you have a lot of gray hairs back here, hey." I was like, I didn't, but now I do. Thank you for telling me that because I couldn't see them on the back of my fucking head. <laughs> okay, I have one. You have one. My mom went gray at like 26, so I'm doing pretty good. My brother started going gray at like 16, so. That would have sucked. I'm thanking my genes for what they're doing for me. But at the same time, I've 
I've gone back and forth. I'm like, do I dye it? I've never dyed my hair before. Or I'm like, do I just embrace it? Like everything about older women and how they're not valued in society. Like would I want to, would I care about dyeing my hair if we weren't so like the intersection between ageism and feminism or ageism and sexism is super, super fucked. And we like treat older women as if they don't exist. And like, if that wasn't the case and older women were celebrated and valued in society, would I care about my hair, you know, going gray? And I was like, I probably wouldn't. These are such important questions to ask. And I'm so happy that you just think about them. I wish more people just thought about the why of things like in marketing, you know, everybody is basically an accumulation of different brands. They choose brands to express aspects of their identity, but those brands also build their brands and their marketing strategies around appealing to those people. Yeah. It's such like a roundabout way and it influences the way that you see yourself. Like there's so much academic research on the concept of makeup. And when marketing changed about makeup, the narrative became like, you know, make you look good for yourself after a period of like, look good for your man. It's really interesting to see how the discourse changes and how it shifts these conversations in society. Cough, cough, ski industry, cough, cough. <laughs> Change. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, cheers to getting more gray hairs in season three of the pandemic. And I don't know. I hope everybody's taking care of themselves to some degree because shit's rough out there. Yeah. Do you have yeah. any final remarks for us, Annalisa? I think I was supposed to depict some Instagrams. Oh, you know, we said we were going to do that, and then we haven't really followed through. Awkward. Yeah. But if you have Instagrams, lay I it do. on us. Yes, let's hear it. So I picked three. Um, the first one is uh, Bennett Ron. Um, she is a plus size, mainly climber, but she's picked up skiing in the past two years. Um, and she is someone that I got connected with through, um, an outdoor women's group. I was an ambassador and she was selected for that group as that ambassador team as well. Um, and like, I, my background and like, especially the sports that I played growing up were deeply, deeply entrenched in fat phobia. Like basically any sport where you're in a swimsuit or a leotard is one that I participated in, um, which definitely fucked up my understanding of bodies and health. Um, and Bennett was one of the first people who was like, weight does not matter. You can do so many rad things at any size. Um, and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, she said she's a climber, but like, what is she really climbing? And it was like really, really badass stuff. Um, and like, she's picked up skiing so, so quickly. And not that any of that is required to be taken seriously and given a legitimate spot and value in both the ski community and the, the ski industry. Um, but she was just one of the first ones who really challenged my understanding and all of the assumptions that I had ever made on weight and health and physical capability and athleticism. Um, and she's, she's doing a ton of really cool shit. She's, uh, worked with outdoor research, um, as kind of like a consultant on their plus size line. Um, you know, talking about all the like technical gear that she needs to be successful in sports. Like a lot of these things that she's going after she's doing in like, the one 2.5 layer like raincoat that like that they sell at REI or like skiing. She was like, you know, I was in a pair of pants that like did not stay. Like when I learned to ski, I was in pants that just would not stay buttoned on my body and like has worked through that to just 
do a lot of really cool stuff in the outdoors. And so um, it's really cool to see her create, like, you know, generate momentum on the like business and gear side to show the legitimacy of the plus size business and um, get more technical and capable gear in, in the hands of the plus size community. So she is rad as hell. Um, the other one that I have uh, is Edge underscore PNW. Um, this is my friend Annette. She is um, a black ski instructor at Stevens Pass. Um, she got into instructing as a way to like get into skiing. Um, a coworker of hers uh, had taken her and she was like, I really like this and I want to get involved in it. And he was like, you should teach. Like basically we'll get you picking up small children uh, around the resort, but that'll be your way of being able to um, to ski every weekend and to, you know, start getting into like technical lessons yourself. And so, um, one of the things that she's done is created this organization, Edge PNW, that does a, um, ski scholarship for, uh, women of color. And it's so awesome because she's like, you know, we're going to get together as a group, like lots of places do outdoor scholarships, um, for women of color. It's very trendy right now, but Annette's really stands out. Um, because she chooses a group of women and she's like, I'm going to be your instructor. Um, we're going to get a cabin for like one of the weekends that we're up there and you're going to bond and you're going to find friends that you can ski with, because that is also a huge factor of feeling welcome and belonging in communities. Just having those people that you get out with regularly. Um, you're going to have somebody with you when you're navigating the resort for the first time, figuring out where rentals are and how to get your lift ticket. Um, and then in, in later weeks after the lessons, she also has worked to build this community of skiers and women of color um, in the Pacific Northwest who come and ski together. So it's like you meet these like expert skiers who can be mentors or, you know, as your skills develop that you can ski with down the line. Um, and it's just really holistic in terms of like introducing someone to a sport and like doing so in a way that like when the program ends, like they feel ingrained and connected in the ski community and like does that on a level that I've never seen done by an or another organization. Um, and just kind of I've worked with her um, just in terms of like reviewing applications and helping select, um, you know, nominees for it. Um, and it was it was one of those times where I'm like, yep, the way to get more people of color into the sport, more women into the sport, more people with disabilities into the sport is just like give them resources and money and like the time that they need to do things and like let them run with it. Because like she knows the black community more than any executive, you know, at the resort would ever be able to fathom. And so like if you want to figure out how to market to a certain demographic of skiers, like put the leaders in that community in positions of power and give them the resources to build out what they think will make them successful because uh, she's definitely a testament to that. Um, and then the third uh, Instagram I have is the Mount Baker Lodge Cats. Um, Mount Baker uh, has a handful of cats that live in one of their lodges. Uh, the first time I saw them, I was like, who brought their cat to a ski resort? Um, but they live there. They have an Instagram page dedicated to them. And just as the mega resorts keep acquiring more and more resorts and kind of making this like cookie cutter Disney World experience, um, it's really, really rad to see like small local community based uh, resorts kind of have those like special touches that that make them um, really part of the community that they serve. Um, and make them special gems that are just so much time fun to spend time in. Um, 
that you you just don't really get from a, a large mega resort. And so the cats are cute if you like co cat content. Um, and yeah, it's it's fun to see what small tiny animals do when they like go go out in the snow. Like they're big fans of big fans of pow days, just like the rest of us. I don't think you know how much animal content I consume online and you just added to it significantly. Also the other accounts, the detail that you went into about why you love them. That was like, yeah, again, you're so good at analyzing stuff. I know. I'm sitting here. I'm like, we need to get those people on this podcast. I you are amazing. <laughs> Holy shit. That's fucking dope. I also want to interview the person that has all these cats. Yes. I don't, I don't know who takes care of them. So, um, or like during the summer, I think the lodge is open. There's like some touristy driving and viewpoints along that way. But, um, I'm like, is there an off season where the lodge closes and the Mount Baker cats go somewhere else? Like I've got a lot of questions that just don't seem to be answered. So I have a lot of questions. So many, we have so many questions for the goddamn cat owners. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a cat cafe, but like, but at a ski resort, like the best of both worlds. I don't even like cats, but I'm like, those cats are pretty rad. Fucking right. Okay. There are good cats and bad cats. Just like good strategy, bad strategy. Oh, totally. I just, I've, there's like a couple with claws that then they just all make me nervous. And I've just spent a lot more time around dogs. I shouldn't say I don't like cats. I just don't know cats well enough to be like at ease and comfortable. And they smell fear. They do smell fear. They do indeed. Yep. And they um, thrive on it. <laughs> they thrive. They're like, problems, always. <laughs> um, do you want to let everybody know where to find you now? If there's any like final plugs before you go? Yeah, um, I'm on Instagram at Feminarly, F-E-M-I-G-N-A-R-L-Y. Um, or you can put that same string of letters.com and that is my web address um, where there's review content and lots of discussion of skis and construction and gear um, and how to make the industry a better place. Hells, yeah. Thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys. I hope I was coherent. You were brilliant. Brilliant. Very. So much knowledge. That was a great conversation on all aspects. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah. I also think we could do some like cool business stuff because hot diggity dang girl, you got a brain on you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways, I hope everybody's having a decent Monday this week. Um, hang in there, have a beer, go skiing. If you have the energy, if you don't, and you need to cry in the shower and eat two pieces of cheesecake, that is okay. <laughs> Because it's season three of the pandemic and we are right there with you. Cool. We'll see you next time. <laughs>